Victim to Heartstopper, a history of British LGBT film and television. To Victim to Heartstopper, a history of British LGBT film and television. Joining us again today are stand-up comedians Scott Agnew and author and broadcaster Michael McManus to provide some of the legal and social background to the era we will be looking at. Scott, how are we today? I'm doing great. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a lovely day here in Glasgow. It's August, it's summertime, which means it's raining. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And Michael, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm the token English person today. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Holding the fort. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we may have to put subtitles for the three of us. Um, so uh, our special guest today is uh, one of the UK's most successful and prolific stand-up comedians. She has appeared on the BBC's Have I Got News for You and Question Time, has supported the likes of John Bishop and Jason Manford on tour across the UK, and has received a string of five-star reviews for her 2022 Edinburgh Fringe show, Born Believer. Absolute joy to have her with us. Please welcome Susie McCabe. Susie, how are you? I'm great. I'm good. This is nice, isn't it? This is quite civilised. It is. It's lovely. Um, and the show's gone tremendously well. One of the first questions I wanted to ask you is, uh, are you going to be touring it? Uh, no, I am already in the process of the next show, which some of which we'll talk about might loop in with that. So I'm already in the process of trying to formulate and come up with the next show, which will be toured uh, hopefully next autumn. We're still dealing with the backlog in theatres. Some. We're still dealing with that because when you've had people booked in for massive national tours and then you're trying to coordinate all the other theatres and such like. So uh, I'll certainly go to the Fringe next year and then, uh, <laughs> I'll, go, then I'll go in tour. So I'll be That's good. That is so bizarre having done it myself and I know Scott's done it. It's so bizarre to hear someone in week three of the Fringe saying they're going to do it next year because <laughs> usually by this point you're like, get it. <laughs> I, I, but I think, and I've seen this the other day, so I don't drink in August. I stay completely sober in August because uh, it's just, it's too long a month. And I think round about the two and a half weeks, three week mark, you kind of hit peak creativity. Because you are, you're not just gigging your own show every night, but you're doing all the other gigs and you're doing the galas and you're doing stuff like that. So you're way into the way of it. And it's the, it's the unfortunate thing about this game that we get a piece and we work that piece and we go into all the nuts and all the bolts and all the nooks and all the crannies. And we finally get that piece and we take it to Edinburgh and then that piece grows again. And then you go and butcher it into three twenty minutes for a club setting. <laughs> you, start, you start that whole painstaking process again, which at the start is daunting, but once you get into it and start to say bits out loud into full rooms, you start to go, "Oh, this is the best bit. This is the best oh, bit." Yeah. You know the, the that's formulation. That's a, 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 a horrible. It's a horrible bit. That isn't it? I mean, uh, it's like asking Pink Floyd to do a bit of day three minutes on this morning. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> what's going to work let's just butcher this that'll be alright <laughs> then they cut across it because Gino's got a recipe do you know what I mean <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's exactly it but it's the process and I always feel that the, the thought of the process is daunting but once you actually write something 
and say it out loud a dozen times and it has a good reaction that gets better and better, you go, right, the process is, is okay, I'm fine with the process. It's just it's just you need to jump off the cliff and start the processes, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, good. That's great. I'm so glad it's gone so well. I'm, I'm really chuffed for you and, and some great reviews and uh, we'll look forward to seeing what comes up uh, beyond this year. So in today's episode, we'll be jumping about our timeline a little bit, uh, focusing on some of the most significant moments in film and TV for Susie. Um, so for those of you who, like me, are chronologically obsessed, please bear with us because we will jump around a little bit. So, <laughs> Michael, we're kind of dropping into the 90s. Um and as the main thrust of what we're looking at today. So what was going on in the UK for the LGBT plus community around about then? Uh, well, I think by the 90s, we're past the high watermark of Section 28 uh, and the general progress towards equality in, in a slightly uh, cautious way uh, continued again. Um, Margaret Thatcher deposed at the end of 1990, replaced by John Major, a more sympathetic character who fairly quickly had Ian McKellen in um, for a meeting, which was very well publicised. They had a serious conversation about uh, how to improve the lot of uh, the LGBT plus community. Um, So, you know, the the climate, not great. I mean, you know, I like to produce a figure or two. And I think an interesting figure um, is the British social attitudes figure. Um, now, astonishingly, really, in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, people were asked whether they believed, quote, sexual relations between two adults of the same sex are always wrong. Um, and the percentage uh, acceding to that in 1983 was 50%. But by 87, it hit 64%. So 64% of people in this country thought that all same-sex relations were were wrong, always wrong. and that. Uh, then fell back by 1993 to 50%, still appallingly high. <laughs> you, there's a sense of the high watermark being around the time of Section 28, which is 1988. Yeah, so, Susie, you want to jump in there? Yeah, I actually talk about this in my show, Scott. seen my show at the Kings, and I actually talk about this at the end of my show, where in 1987, the, the Prime Minister of the day stood at a Tory party conference and said that children like me and I knew I was gay in 1987, I was seven, and I knew I liked girls, I couldn't quite articulate it. But when the Prime Minister of the day at the pinnacle of power says that stuff, <laughs> and that spreads out into the media, the social attitudes tip. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, and I say this in the show, and by the time this goes out, the show will be done, is that for me personally, what that then resulted in that 10 years later from that party conference speech when I told my parents I was gay, that narrative had been pushed in the media and the press and then became a conversation in pubs and golf clubs and bingo halls and supermarkets that when I stood in front of my parents, I was then given the choice to not to be gay or leave home. Yeah. And that 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 comes from from that, that comes from that pinnacle of power that Michael was talking about, about how, you know, that was done and, and the effect that that really had on me as a child and ultimately as a teenager and ultimately well into the 2000s. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. 
as an mm-hmm. adult when we were well down the way with LGBT rights. But that that sits there and mm-hmm. and, and, and it manifests and it's very difficult to shift that. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's all very well changing laws, you know, and, and governments are, are very, very good at changing laws, you know, but it's 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 what work then goes in after it to change attitudes, you know, um, and, you know, when you hear that, what, what was it, 60, 67%, 60%? Thought we were thought it was wrong in eighty seven. You know that there's always going to be a hardcore. That you're never going to shift, but that's that's that's, that's you know that's, that's it's always, always two thirds. Almost two thirds of the population say that same sex relations are always wrong. Mm-hmm. And and just uh, you know walking down the street with that idea that everybody around the round, you know, essentially everybody around about you has probably you know got it in for you in some way or. Right. Two out of three think it's not normal, and the third person is the homosexual. But <laughs> 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 it's, it's not not normal. It's always wrong. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's not just a, you know the, 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 you've gone beyond the question of, of normal and the power of that word into something very very dark. But it, I mean, I think what is interesting about Section Twenty Eight, many things are interesting about Section Twenty Eight, is that it, it was in a sense an aberration. It was a spasm. Because there was a general movement, uh, and around this time, the early 1990s, that uh, openly gay people are allowed to serve in, the, serve in the armed forces for the first time. Uh, it, the age of consent came down not to 16, not to equality, but to 18 by quite a big majority in under a Tory government. So the general director of the Isle of Man finally caught up. You know, a lot of things were happening. This, the, there was no real interruption to the general improvement of the law. But what there was was Section 28 and this huge spasm and, and as you guys are saying, um, a change in society, a negative change in how people were feeling. Because it comes from the pinnacle of power as well. Mm. And that, the, the, you know, at that point in 87, the next stop, you know, was the editors. I mean, you just need to look at who was editing the papers, you know. <laughs> and, and we all know the story of, you know, Thatcher going round and, taking off her shoes and putting her feet up in the sofa, you know, chatting away to Kelvin McKenzie and the like. So when it comes from that and then that narrative goes out, it's very difficult for society not to go down that road, as we've seen recently. Michael, just to uh, give any viewers that or listeners that might be um, abroad, what was the Section 28 law? What did it actually forbid people to do? Um, the, the, like many laws that go into social policy, the the greatest danger, which was ignored at the time, was the chilling effect. You know, the the effect on behaviour that went beyond the intention of the law. Um, the stated intention of the law was to end the proselytising in schools, uh, paid for by local government, um, in favour of a homosexual lifestyle. That was the stated intention, and essentially, that was the drafting of Section Twenty Eight, uh, Section Twenty Eight of a local major local government act. Uh, and that that too is interesting because it was uh, an amendment. It was a backbench amendment. It wasn't a government policy as such. Uh, it was tried before the 1987 general election. Margaret Thatcher won that 
comprehensively, and it came back very quickly after it. But it was always sponsored by the backbenchers. But I managed to get into the government papers from the time, and it was definitely picked up and supported by ministers. And there was this speech uh, which Susie mentioned, where Margaret Thatcher at the party conference. Uh, this this will date our conversation slightly because they, uh, we are talking during the Tory leadership election campaign, um, and politicians talking to their party members particularly uh, at the times of stress, can sound even more extreme than usual. And it was Margaret Thatcher to her party conference who really sent a shudder down people's spine by saying that children were being taught they had a right to be gay and saying this clearly uh, with the intent of saying they don't have that right. Yeah, but it's interesting that it's, its impact as a law, from my point of view, so I was a young teacher in the 90s, as a law, it was fairly toothless. But as, as Susie and Michael have alluded to, it had its impact in the broader social sense. Because I know I broke that law many, many times as a young teacher in the 90s. I, I was not prepared to, I was prepared to die on that hill. That was not a problem for me. And in fact, I, th- I think I had a feeling at the time, come and get me. I'll I'll be the test case. You know, I'll, I'll stand up in court and argue why it's important that I should support uh, young kids who are LGBT who need that support that we never had. I would safe to say that all four of us didn't have that when we were in school. So it was a toothless law in that respect, but an incredibly powerful one because to my knowledge, no one was ever prosecuted under Section 28, but it still had a huge impact. Susie? Yeah, I mean, it was the societal impact and and how that resonates. And it, and it is about, you know, the pubs and the golf clubs and the bingo halls and the supermarkets. You know, and it's like you're saying, yeah, it's a toothless law, but the fact it was put on the statute books and it was on, you know, the front pages of newspapers, <laughs> so you know, proclaiming as if as if children were getting taught how to be gay, uh-huh. you know, mm. and 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 this real all the negative connotations and and do you know what it was fake news, right? Mm. But like you're saying, Charlie, you were you were prepared to die in that hill. But, you know, if, if we didn't have teachers like you, you could have had a, a young teenager considering suicide. You could have had them doing that because it, I knew how much of a disaster it was going to be within my family. But I still had to say the words out loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Saying the words out loud were then made incredibly difficult Yeah, and it, because, it, because of the government of the day. These these laws, you know, and things like that. As much as saying, you know, nobody was prosecuted. You know, as it says, as we say, it's that chilling effect. You know, but it's but it's also it's actually there's, I think there's something sort of slightly darker about it. It's appealing to the sadist in people. Right? Mm-hmm. It's about that we're going to punish a group that's not us. You know, and it's actually it's going to make us feel better because we actually in their heads we don't know anybody like that. You know, we don't know anybody like that. Um, and it makes us, the normal people, feel better that we've got better, you know, special privileges over those other people. It's a bit, of, you know, it's, it appeals to something quite sadistic when when times are hard. You know, when politicians oh, don't have answers for things. Yeah. Instead of proposing solutions, they actually make you look at other groups and go, well, at least I'm not them. At least things aren't as bad for me. You know, it's, it, it's been done with every minority group. And I think that's that's a, it's a really dangerous thing to play with. I mean, she played with it in, in 87 uh, and, and we're really, really playing with it now. Um, you know, And I, t- I talk about that in the show and I go, we call this culture wars. So it's just bigotry. So you're not just doing it to gays, you're doing it to you know, gays, trans, immigrants, poor people now 
if you're poor, you're now being, you know, castigated by society for being poor. Well, you, That's you, who we are. You just have to look at the. You just have to look at the progression of the word woke in two years, right? Yeah. Woke in the summer of 2020 was was black people demanding their rights. Woke now is is the railwaymen out on strike. You know, um, you know, and they they move all these words. You know, they move mm. what they, I, to suit a government agenda. Um, you know, but as, as somebody pointed out to me today, you know, it's. it's um, what is it? It's called quiet quitting. Quiet quitting, and that's apparently people who finish their job but they're contracted out and don't do any extra tasks. You know, as the unions would say, that's called work to rule. But quiet quitting suddenly blames the person that's doing it. You've quit. You've given up. You've not done something. And this that is what's going on. Is that pernicious shifting of language and attitudes? to look at certain things uh, and you can vote for me in Glasgow Central dialects. <laughs> so, I would vote for I got on my soapbox there, sorry. <laughs> well, we're, we're, uh, we could talk about this in a whole separate podcast yeah, and know, just I focus know. on this. One final point, Charlie, which is that the use of language in the law was important because it talks about the promotion mm. of homosexuality. Yes. So, you know, th- there was an acceptance within government and within the governing party that something which is a state of being can be promoted. Uh-huh. People, the essence of a human being can be changed by imagery and argument, which I think is something really quite extraordinary looking back from the perspective of today. Yeah, we do all know that homosexuals have a much better life anyway because we're fabulous. Promotion, promote. I want to, everyone wants to be promoted. <laughs> More money, better job. Let's get promoted. Um, that—that's why there was a cultural effect of it. I think the chilling cultural effect was the idea of promotion. Um, this is me attempting to segue neatly into what we're going to discuss in terms of uh, popular culture. That it was a brave decision by anybody in that climate to do something which presented something positively, because that technically could it could be argued mm. is promotion of something. Well, bizarrely, in the world of culture um, and the creative arts, as you said, Michael, there was a fight against this. So in the 90s, we had uh, plays like Beautiful Thing by Jonathan Harvey put on. Um, we had a, a, a play called Shopping and Fucking by Mark Ravenhill, which was particularly shocking play, but nonetheless, subs very much put out there the the society and the sort of gay gay scene and gay social scene um and also and Susie one of the things I I did ask Susie to, to ask us what she wanted to talk about and um it was a very bold decision in 1991 by the BBC to do an adaptation of oranges are not the only fruit um can you tell us what your memories are of that Susie and why that had a significant uh, turning point was was a significant turning point for you yeah so i think for me there was there was a bit of scandal about this show coming on television because, look, if we're going to be perfectly frank, even just what you've quoted there, Charlie, you know, they are, they're male-dominated and gay men have always been visible in one form or another on, on British television, whether it be through kind of a chat show host, game show hosts, you know, that overtly camp, non-threatening gay man and then, you know, there was other storylines and soaps and stuff like that. So this was a thing where we had a series with lesbians. Now, when I was growing up, 
I used to watch Jo Brand on Friday Night Live and think she was a lesbian. Uh-huh. And Jo Brand used to very much harness that image. Yeah. That, and, and she wasn't, and but she had no problem with the label. But this was the first time we had an actual series, a show, and you knew you weren't going to watch this with your with your parents. This wasn't going to be on the TV. This was you sneaking upstairs, getting into your bedroom and watching it with the you know the volume turned down and sitting quite near your television because we never had a remote control. You know, I, and the only reason I had a TV in my room is because my brother had joined the military and I got his little portable, which he had got from my grandfather, right? So it, was like, it, was, it wasn't it was a 32-inch flat screen. It was a, a tiny little screen that weighed about 14 tonnes. Um, and sitting watching it in my bed and being like, there's, there's people like me now. This couldn't have been any further away from me. You know, it was it was Christian evangelists and it was a small seaside town and I was Roman Catholic, East End of Glasgow. It was very far away, but the notion that there was a girl attracted to a woman was very much me, you know. And that's when, you, and we've all had it, it doesn't matter, you know, if you're a gay guy, or a gay woman, it doesn't matter. We've all sat in the end of that bed going, there's someone else like me in the world because mm-hmm. here's an adaptation of a world that I'm not particularly familiar with. And it was actually quite harrowing. I mean, it wasn't something that made you want to jump out of bed and, you know, fire on Donna Summer and feel good about yourself. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, you know, you, you had the exorcisms and such like in it, and it almost maybe put a bit of fear in you to coming out. And I didn't come from a particularly religious family. I was brought up Catholic, but you know, Glasgow Catholic, in it? It's like communions, weddings, funerals, Celtic. So that's your kind of <laughs> overarching Catholic faith. But you went, you went to the Catholic school and all that, and it, it, it just made you go, right, it's not just me. But what I would say is, lesbians on television is always a very dour, dramatic experience, isn't it? Like, <laughs> like I'm not being funny, but you look at like, guys, even the most tragic HIV AIDS storyline, and it still looks good fun. Do you know what I mean? It still looks good fun. Like, you're like, look at them, they're out partying, the music's amazing, the fashion's amazing, they're, you know, taking a disco biscuit and having the time of your life. Lesbians are a bit, let's go for a walk along the shore and listen to the sound of the sea. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit... (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, what will we do today? Will we have ravenous sex? Let's read poetry. <laughs> like you never ever really see the whole like lesbian sex thing on television, you know. Whereas guys, we've had programs where you know I'm like, I want to be a gay guy, man. That looks amazing the time they're having. <laughs> but it didn't matter because it was art. And you know what I would say that Channel Four and BBC Two were very important to me in the nineties because. Obviously, we were at a time, and for younger people that are maybe listening to this, we were at a time where, you know, you, you maybe had a TV in your room, but you never sat in your room and watched it. 
unless it was kind of night time. Mm-hmm. You would be downstairs watching documentaries, world in action, panorama, quiz shows, soaps, whatever, and then you would you would go up to your room. So to you to sneak away up to your room and watch something in BBC Two or Channel Four that was a bit risky, that was a bit dangerous, that if you get caught watching, you know, you were going you were going to need to try and explain why you were watching it. But the fact is, it was probably the first thing that I ever watched looking back and seen it as art. Because uh-huh. I came from a, a typical working class house. We didn't go to the theatre. We didn't, we didn't even go to the cinema, really. And it was probably the first thing that I watched knowingly of an adaptation of a book on BBC Two. I think it was BBC Two, nine o'clock, and, and sat and watched it. And it was quite intense. It was quite an intense thing. To watch, and I was eleven years old. I'd just started secondary school, so it was it was quite just a big affirmative thing in my particular timeline. You know, that's not to say that it's the same for everyone, but on my timeline of that, mm. oh, this is this is a screenplay from a book, and then you go and get the book, and then you uh. hide the book. <clears throat> Can't have that book lying about the house, you know. <laughs> also, if my dad caught me reading a book, he'd be like, "What are you up to?" You know. So, and being Catholic with orange in the title, that was automatically suspect. Do you know what I mean? Which was <laughs> seen that in July, I would have been at the house at eleven. So. <laughs> but no, but I remember. I remember you and I are roughly about the same age, you know. And I remember no really even a clue about my my own sexuality either. But being absolutely captivated by by that that as a show, do you know, like I I, I don't know if it's this obvious, but I, I'm not a lesbian, do you know. But um, but you got that kind. That is obvious to be honest with you. <laughs> you know, but uh, but I got something, and I would love to know what it was that was sort of communicating through the screen. At what would have been? Well, if that was ninety one, ninety that had been nine ten. Do you know what I mean? I don't know what what that was. It was communicating that kind of locked onto that, and it stuck like in my mind. Uh, and and like that, it was sort of later on. I, I remember buying a book. And we were not only bought the book because we were going to. It was a school trip to France, and we were. It was you know because obviously you know it being a, a Southside Glaswegian public school. You know, we weren't going first class. We were on a coach all the way to the Alps, right, for forty-five hours. <laughs> so that, so the, I remember getting it like that. But I was able to read that on the coach because it was out the way of everybody else. It was out the way of my family, you know, and really threw threw myself into the book uh, because uh, there was something, there was something dangerous about it that felt that yeah, it would get you in trouble, you know. Yeah, because Paul yeah, is yeah. A, Bold as it was, they 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 took a lot of stuff out of the book um, uh, for the TV adaptation. The relationship between Jess and the teacher was taken away for the TV yeah. adaptation. Yeah, yeah. And do you know what's funny? Looking back now, was it uh, Geraldine McEwen? McEwen, yeah, yeah. Who then done that and then started to play Miss Marple quite close to, to, <laughs> to that. Yeah. You know, then you're 14 going, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, why is Miss Marple? What's going on? But it, yeah, and I, th- I think you, I think at that time because homosexuality, uh, I mean, it was a subculture. Yeah. You know, we were underground and we were subculture. And you can argue the case about that 
how much equality he's brought us, but have we lost a little bit of that subculture yeah. uh, as she sits here with a Fred Perry on, right? But <laughs> it's it's one of those things where I think, like, a beautiful thing, you know, me listening to the mamas and the papas and knowing the connotation between that gay subculture and the mamas and the papas and, like, just all the little things that, that you knew that your friends didn't know. Because your friends weren't they watching oranges, aren't they the only fruit? No, no, that's it. No. It was like your little secret club in your head. And it's only when you finally do come out and you talk to other people, they're like, oh, I remember, you know, duvet over the bed and watching that or taping it and, you know, not telling my parents what I was taping and then, you know, watching it when they weren't in. Um, and you think to yourself, my God, what a world we lived in. Um, but what, what, can I, can I point out at this stage that Su- Susie's got her Fred Perry on and I'm sitting here with an ABBA t-shirt on so you know <laughs> we're, we're kind of uh, you know firing right into the stereotypes there. Michael do you have any memory of watching Oranges Are Not The Only Fruit or did you watch it at the time or have you watched it since? Um, I have confess I haven't seen it Right <laughs> I haven't seen it um, I've read the book a long time ago uh, but I haven't seen it but I don't really watch television, so pretty yeah. used. <laughs> this is this is true. Michael, can I point out, Susie, Michael still has one of those TVs you were talking about. I mean, I go the ways about 14 tonne. He's still got one of them. The big tube at the back. The big Aye, tube. He's, he's working yeah. off, he's not got a USB, he's working off scart plugs. Uh, my television is older than about half my friends. <laughs> <laughs> Is the monthly rumbles still come and take the <laughs> at least I'm not renting it. <laughs> uh, uh, but another it's interesting you say that it was your little secret, but you did bring up another really significant moment that your pals would have talked about, and that was the kiss in Brookside. Uh which was a oh. big moment. Now, we, we are discussing soaps in a separate episode, so we will discuss this again. But Susie, I imagine that probably had a huge impact. Massive, massive. So I watched Brookside anyway, and then obviously it came out with the whole Beth and Margaret thing, and you were watching that, and the sexual tension, oh, it was palpable. And <laughs> it, was, it was the episode of The Kiss, which if you, I mean, you guys will, will probably remember more than me, I mean, the scandal of, of this kiss between two women was like nothing you've ever seen before. And, you know, TV was probably a bit bolder back then with regards to documentaries and factual programmes. You know, your your world in actions and your panoramas would, would show things on screen without a warning and, and you would just watch it and that because it was part of life. This was like the biggest thing to happen in my world. And it was nine o'clock. And I taped it. And every time I was in the house myself, because, you know, my that's just what happened when you were a kid in the 90s, you know. Your parents went to work and you'd done your stuff. I would sit and watch this kiss and watch it and watch it and watch it. And, watch it and, and I was obsessed with it. And even now, I still have a thing for girls with long red curly hair, right? <laughs> because I was Margaret and never Beth. I'm glad we talked. It's good we can be really honest with each other. Well, that's the way it should be. Why don't you stay here again tonight? No, it wouldn't be right. Why not? Well, if you want me to be totally honest, I wouldn't... 
I wouldn't feel content staying in the spare room. Jimmy? You know how I feel about you. It doesn't just end with me finding you attractive, liking your personality. I fancy you in the same way I fancy Peter Harrison. I want to kiss you the way I kissed him. Whereas everyone was Beth, right? We talked to every lesbian of my generation, they're like Beth, and I'm like, oh no, Margaret's big comfy jumper. <laughs> Cheeky, a good cuddle would make you a nice breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I watched that kiss so much that the actual tape was worn. The actual tape became so worn because I'd literally just sit and watch it and be like, this is right, this is a thing, there's people like me. And then the, the I mean, it was literally a kiss at a door. But I remember um, being backstage in the Edinburgh stand years later and I was watching on Twitter. I think I was MC. And I was Again, for those who don't know, the stand comedy club in Edinburgh is one of the biggest comedy clubs in Scotland. Just to oh, put the context on it. An amazing room. And it was the Friday night and it was the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympic Games. And I was stood behind the door and I was going through Twitter, and my t- like Twitter was on fire that night, and people were talking about the NHS and all that, and then it was the visions around the screen. I'm actually getting goosebumps talking about this. Mm. And somebody on my Twitter had taken a picture of their telly of the Brookside kiss, and I, like, I proper just welled up, because <laughs> I was like, it wasn't just me. It wasn't just me how much that, that meant. It wasn't just me, and and to do it in such a way, it's something that was getting beamed around the world to countries where they are still throwing homosexuals off of roofs of buildings and saying, no, this is our Olympics and this is what we stand for. And it was bold of Danny Boyle and I will forever love him for it because that, it wasn't, and I don't mean this in a bad way, you, you guys know yourself, I've never been, I've, I'm very inclusion, I've never been one for lesbian bars and gay men only bars I've never been that that person I, I want us all together as one big community but that kiss to be beamed around all those years later and I was standing as what a 32 year old gay woman and just thinking aye it's alright the world's alright the world's alright we're, we're, we're doing that stuff and that's okay Just a pity that kind of that London 2012 opening ceremony just became a list of targets rather than things to celebrate. But anyway. What was brilliant? The one time I've actually ever felt proud to be British. <laughs> and then like, folk have just sort of worked through everything that happened in that opening ceremony. Went, How do we ruin that? How do we fuck that off? How do we destroy this? You know, and, you know, great. You know, how I feel great That's about it. So true, but, but it is like it, it, it is it's that type of going. It was so it was pivotal. Yeah. It was absolutely pivotal because lesbians we we don't get a lot of visibility really, and I understand that, and I get that from a perspective of kind of creativity. And sometimes lesbians are their own worst enemy. Well, I mean. I remember because about when I was out with my, my very very first boyfriend, and you, know, you 
I'd met my first boyfriend within six weeks of being on the scene in Glasgow and so we weren't out we weren't out every weekend you know we were sort of doing our own thing but when we go in when we would go in to you know the Poe which was the largest gay club in Scotland you know it was always bouncy and it was live you know it was it was a real kind of exciting place to be and I remember walking in one kind of Tuesday Wednesday night or something I know you're and, I, and and I kind of went, oh, what's going on in here? And like, me and me and uh, my, my my first boyfriend at that point, Alan, uh, we were we were the only two guys in the room. What that? Well, right, different vibes. I genuinely thought we'd walked in to like some kind of wake. Right? <laughs> horse, if you remember, horse, horse was playing the guitar, right? and it was just the whole West being crowded. It was all very reverential and quiet, and I'm like that. There must be some must must be somebody off a well known that's, that's passed away. But, and it was nice. We, we, scene, right? and horse is brilliant, and it was lovely. But it's it, it, there was there, there wasn't a lot of joy, and that was also the first I'd ever been exposed, if you like, to a sort of full room of lesbians and all that. That can't be other day. I'm so I'm so glad I, I met you because you're the antithesis of that. <laughs> yes. Never, I, I never, I, I still don't own a horse album and I've never paid money to see her live. And I used to work <laughs> in Dells when she would do those PAs. Also, like, there used to be the lesbian disco in Bennett's, second floor Bennett's, first Friday of the month, full moon disaster. <laughs> and I would be working in Delmonica's, which was, you know, one of Glasgow's most well known gay bars, which was a feeder for the Polo Lounge. And you go in and build a football playing lesbians. They'd all be in in their wee groups, drinking cider and black currant, and it would be banging dance music. And then I would need to cut through the polo lounge to get to our cellar, and it would be like do 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 do, and they'd all be standing drinking sparkling water. You know, talking about going to see poetry at the Whistler's mother, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, can can we not just kind of come together? And then I used to go round to that. And I hated it. I hate that exclusive environment of where it was just all women and you had everything from drag drag kings to really femme lesbians. And I just never knew. And this, I'll touch on this, but this is kind of what I'm touching on with the new show. I don't know what sliding scale of women and where I fit in. Uh And And I've always kind of felt like that. And sometimes I've always felt that like the lesbians are just what not so much now, but certainly traditionally, you know, Madame Gillespie's women only night, the red curtain getting pulled across in bells before my time. Quite serious, you know, quite serious. Yeah. A lot of us were very well educated as uh, well. Yeah. That kind of university, high end, very intelligent. So almost the the idea of, of going out and letting their hair down was going to listen to poetry. So, uh, and it was kind of reflected in the art that was then reflected on television. It kind of what Scott just said reminded me of a time and we're now gonna gonna bounce away a little bit off our, our main theme. Um I walked into Dells one night to a huge crowd who had gathered uh, to watch a huge TV moment and uh, going across the pond uh, in Dells, there was a huge crowd gathered to watch the moment that Ellen came out on television. So um, I worked that night, Charlie. Ah, I, I was there in Dells. <clears throat> I was, uh, I was probably glass collecting. 
and you could not see one bit of the floor. <clears throat> everybody was either stand, and it actually got to the point where everyone just started to sit on the floor. And the back bit of the monikers had this massive church ceiling and two sets of booths running up the side and little blue tables all around it. And there was absolute swathes and it was an amazing moment because mm-hmm. you were in a gay bar in the centre of Glasgow and it was filled with gay men and gay women of every age, you know, people that had really you know, fought the fight from the beginning, as it were, to people who, you know, fought the fight when it was a little bit easier but still very difficult to this moment where we were all just gathered. I mean, it was heaving. You couldn't move. And we put the episode on two television screens. There was no music. Nine o'clock on a Friday night, we put the televisions through the PA and nobody came to the bar for a drink and nobody spoke. They just stood and watched it. And when she done that coming out moment, the place just erupted. And it, it... that's massive. That's massive. And again, probably in our timeline and our, and our, our moment in our, our little slot, you know, that, that, that was massive. But I will never forget working that night. And the pub was like, it was like New Year's Eve. It was so busy. <laughs> and then, and it was, we, we called it Ellen's Coming Out Party. And we put it on and then we did DJ and, and it was, you know, Camp classics, everyone drinking, dancing. And that's kind of the point of, of this journey that we're on in this series is that if you told that story to an 18-year-old now that a pub was rammed just for a character coming out on television, they probably couldn't get their head round <laughs> that con- even as a concept. What? Why? I don't <laughs> you know. know. I mean, that's like every, every other second character in most shows now, you know, <clears throat> will have, you know, a gay character or a gay storyline um, and you know obviously some better than others but that for that and I think it was again it mattered that it was America and it was in a big network show you know that we knew that this was this was going to change you know what I mean it's a shift um, yeah you know I had yeah. had to be it had to be America you know because uh, yeah. it because does have the same sort of we had addressed a lot of stuff on television with, you know, and I'll, you guys will obviously be dealing with that in different episodes, but for America to have that, because, like, let's also remember, and Michael will know this more than me, that that timeline in America, you were only 11 years after, you know, in fact, you were you were less than 11 years. This was the, the second term of Clinton. Mm-hmm. You weren't that far away from Bush, Bush is president, Bush is vice president, that's George uh, Herbert Walker, Bush Sr., and Reaganomics, and the, the the HIV, the Rock Hudson, the Nancy Reagan, the Ronald Reagan, which I will stay well away from because I'm sure you'll talk about that at some other point. But for America to have went on their journey and then it took a woman from mid-state America to get a network television and then come out on that show was like it was like that ceiling had just went mm. um, 
with, uh, much to Michael's delight, we're going to talk about briefly another TV show. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, moving forward to 2002, and, and again, we can maybe look at that journey from Oranges Are Not The Only Fruit to Tipping The Velvet, where you've got this show that's in a small seaside community to a, a show um, with lesbian characters right in the middle of London, bold as brass, right out there, front and centre, what was that impact? I mean, you were obviously an adult by then, Susie. You must have been, what, 22, 21, 22? Yeah, um, 22. And you're in a very different place. Anna had one big brother because she was a, a, an out lesbian, former nun, of course. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Anna, had, uh, Anna had one big brother and she had kind of done her stuff. And then we watched Tipping the Velvet, which was like, they had a bigger budget. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Than what they did for Tipping the Velvet. You know, sorry for oranges are not the only fruit. They certainly had a bigger budget. But it, there's a wee dog trying to get in this bedroom. But <laughs> uh, it'll not be the first time in my life, boys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was still buried away in BBC Two, though. It was still buried away and it was still a thing of right, we've got this and it's art, but it was bigger budget, a bit more mainstream, but still not really any well established names at that point. Um like as you could see, you know, there was no big hitters, whereas you know, recently we've obviously Gentleman Jack, Saran Jones, a massive name in British television, been in so yeah. many different things so many lead roles, lead female and all that. And uh, it, it it was a different time. And it was the kind of debauchery of Victorian London as well, though, of, you know, lesbians dressing up as little boys and, oh, you know, let's, they were pretending to be rent boys and then they would mug men and, and all that kind of stuff. But it, it was the societal and the social class because obviously it's Britain. So everything comes back to social class, doesn't ah, it? Everything. Ultimately everything. So we had the social class, we had the hoi polloi, we had the, 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 the runaway to Victorian London to trying to find ourselves and then almost being a bit of a working class plaything. And it's a very, very different show. And it was much more graphic. It was more graphic than any lesbian TV show had ever been. However, it was still fucking, you know, let's read poetry first before we make love. Do you know what I mean? What's the Canal Street? Do you know what I mean? That, that's my memory of it as well, you know, which kind of added to this. There was this always very, this idea of, uh, lesbians being very, very sort of buttoned up and proper, uh, you know, um, and and it was always there was almost the kind of you know that that kind of typical sort of porn story storyline, you know, you know the, the working class girl gets a job in the city. So I think there was a, there always seemed to be that sort of narrative where they had to be, you know. Yeah. A My Fair Lady but porn version of it. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, this this was uh, pre-Oscar Wilde's uh, Victorian London. Uh, so culturally, you know, what was going on then? There was still, I know the Victorians were very anti this, but, but was there a sense that, that you could get away with it? And, and, and we no. talked in a previous episode about the class separation. Yeah, I think the uh, it's very interesting to uh, read about the history of the music halls 
Uh, you go somewhere like, I mean, not many survive, but Wilton's and Hoxton Hall both survive in London. And they both seat around 300 people, I think, now, maybe 400. And you used to have thousands of people crammed into the music halls. Now, you know, they were doing all kinds of things with each other and to each other. You know, they were, the rent boys were working them. Um, the sex workers were working them. I, I think, you know, it was, wasn't much talked about. And certainly class has ever bedeviled everything. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, the higher you were in the echelons of society, the more you could get away with, of course. But I, I think, you know, London, particularly London in Victorian times, was in essence a very liberal, sort of libertarian, liberty hall kind of place, actually. And, <laughs> and it is, you know, the, the, the music halls were an example of where um, that was uh, acted upon in a very intimate and enjoyable way. I think uh, the cleaners the morning after the musicals, even the uh, sort of places you're talking about, Susie to shame, uh, what they'd have to scrape off the floors. I mean, you know, it was a very, um, you know, live and let live sort of place. And in fact, you know, the first negative change in the law that there was um, the amendment in, in, in late Victorian times, the Labouchere Amendment, which created this new offence of offending public decency, which was designed to um, crack down on gay people being too overt in expressing their affections. So I think, you know, it was quite, it was quite uh, lively. It's so, like I love that it's even got a camp name, La Boucher Law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, the apparent history of that is he was a Liberal MP who staggered into the House, pissed in the small hours during the passage of an unrelated bill and put this thing down and it went through on the nod. And, you know, for the next... Um, 80 years, um, gay men could be had up for holding hands. Wow. I didn't, well, I didn't, I, I didn't, I'd obviously had heard of offending public decency. I didn't realize it was made up just for us. I thought it would have been, uh, you know, it was, it was meant for, well, just for you know, just the lower classes in general who might be a loutish and out of, uh, I didn't realize it was very particularly tailored to, to us a lot. It's it's because there was no real debate. It's not clear what the intention was, but the effect certainly was uh, very differential, because certainly. it was um, argued very quickly in case law that public decency was offended by any uh, explicit expression of same-sex affection. But it, and the interesting thing in the context of the conversation we're having, you know, the law never um, went against same-sex acts for women. I mean, then lesbianism has never been illegal. No, because they didn't think it existed, <laughs> or they could do anything. Queen Victoria might have explained it to them quite uh, effectively, um, <laughs> but no, I, I think that's that's right. But it just never. I think you know because the country's run by public school men, and they know what happens at public schools, and anything else doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid that time has bedeviled us. And uh, yes, I've done one of my cheesy links again. Yeah. Um, Susie, have you had fun? That was great fun, great fun. It's, really it's interesting as well, like like the different, like Michael's chat about the stuff that was going on as well and the laws and stuff. That Michael, I could like literally spend a week with you just going, is that right? <laughs> oh, well, we can, I'm sure we can arrange that. Well, thanks so much, Susie. Um, thanks to Scott. Thanks to Michael. It's been a wonderful thanks. episode. Uh, you've been listening to Victim to Heart Stopper presented by me, Charlie Ross, with Scott Agnew and Michael McManus. Our guest today was Susie McCabe. Title music by Ross T. Our online trailer by Brett Underwood and it's produced by Sparkling Productions. Thank you so much. Please join us again.
Head on over to Instagram to join us there for more information about upcoming episodes and lots of extra content. Victim to Heartstopper, that's with a number two in the middle. Victim to Heartstopper on Instagram.